All right. Uh, my name is Harrison. I'm the associate pastor here at Hope Chapel. And if you are here and uh, visiting today, new with us, um, I'd love to meet you. And those connect cards that Michael mentioned, or sorry, Ashley mentioned, are uh, great ways for us to reach out to you to grab lunch or coffee with you just to get to know you better. So please fill one of those out um, if you want to, yeah, hang out. Um, so uh, we, our theme for this year as a church has been cultivating shalom. Um, shalom is uh, defined as life as it was meant to be, life in the Garden of Eden, life in heaven that we have the privilege of, through the Spirit, bringing about here on earth in our various spheres of life. Um, many of you know this by now. Uh, we say it only every single week, um, but I'm saying it for the new people who don't know about it. Um, so the term cultivate is a gardening term, and if you've ever cultivated a garden or transformed a wild plot of land into a garden, uh, one thing that might have dawned on you is how disruptive you have to be to the original plot of land. You have to upturn all the soil there, you have to pull out and dispose of all the weeds, you got to remove everything that would be uh, work against the garden, which often is most of the plants and rocks uh, that are there. So cultivating soil is necessarily disruptive. You disrupt an area to make space for something better, to bring about the land's full potential that it might bear fruit. Necessary disruption. This concept exists really in almost every sphere of life when you think about it. If you need surgery, you first have to be disrupted. You have to be cut open uh, to, to bring healing, uh, for that healing to take place. If you want to remodel your, your bathroom, uh, your old bathroom has to be very disrupted. You got to demolish it, take it all out, and replace it with the new and better. If you want to learn anything new, a uh, big concept in learning is disruption. Uh, shaking up your old frameworks and preconceived ideas that you might replace them with more accurate ones. So like in those examples, there's a sense to which true witness to the gospel, the cultivating of shalom, is disruptive to the world around us. Notice uh, the apostles' witness in our passage causes changes in the Ephesian economy. It seems to threaten the pride and identity of a major city, so much so, so that a riot ensues as a result. This is not the only riot in Acts. Uh, in a different riot, the apostles are accused of turning the world upside down. Can you imagine how disruptive it is for a dollhouse to turn it upside down? My daughter likes to do earthquakes in her dollhouse. Uh, she'll shake it in earthquakes. Um, and that's disruptive enough, but you imagine if I came in there and flipped it upside down and all the characters, Daniel Tiger characters, fall down, hit the roof, and all the plates and tiny little pieces fall down. That's what the apostles' witness felt like to some people. Their witness was especially disruptive to that which was evil, to Satan's empire of sin, that God, through his witnesses, was turning upside down. So Luke, uh, the author of Acts, wants us to notice three phenomenon that occurred due to the apostles' witness, and three phenomenon that you should expect and prepare for if you hope to engage in true witness yourself. This first one is the disruption caused by true witness. Second, the disruption caused by the enemies of true witness. And third is the order in which true witness flourishes. So disruption caused by true witness, disruption caused by the enemies of true witness, and the order in which true witness flourishes. 
So let me uh, pray before we dive in. God, would you teach us how to give your true witness to others this morning? Teach us of the disruption to Satan's world that must come with our true witness. And Lord, would you give us compassion and courage and boldness to not just hear these things, but take them in and live them out in our lives this week. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the disruption caused by true witness. Look in verse 23, the passage is in your, in your worship guide if you've got it or in a Bible. Um, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance or disruption concerning the way. So before the term Christianity was around, Jesus, following Jesus was publicly known as the way, probably deriving from Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The apostles in their speeches speak of the way to God, the way of salvation, the way of the Lord. So following Jesus was known as the way. And the way in this passage led to no little disruption. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So a little background here. Artemis was one of the most revered and worshipped goddesses in the ancient world. She was the goddess of the hunt, and at some point she had been synchronistically combined with an Asian goddess of fertility, and at this point was now depicted as a woman with many breasts. There was a big image of her in the temple in Ephesus, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people came from all over the ancient world, to worship, to see her and worship. And each year there was a big festival to her with a lot of alcohol and orgies. In other words, Ephesus was kind of the mecca of Satan's empire of idolatry. Demetrius was an Ephesian who was in the tourism business. He brought in a lot of money to the city and to craftsmen by selling their little silver shrines of Artemis to the visitors. They could take home as a souvenir and a little idol to worship of their own. So Demetrius profited basically off of other people's idolatry and other people's sin. In verse 25, these these craftsmen, uh, he, Demetrius, gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius says a true statement here. Remember Paul's speech in Athens back in Acts 17 from two weeks ago. Paul says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Demetrius hears this basically from that speech. It's time to get rid of your little silver shrines to Artemis that Demetrius sold you. She's not real. It's time to turn from the gods you made to the true God who made you. So now Demetrius is trying to show others the likely effects of this witness over time. Verse 27, he says, And there is danger not only this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So Demetrius is upping the ante a little bit here. The majority of people may not have cared about Demetrius' business, but they would have cared about the seventh wonder of the ancient world. Ephesus' identity and pride, the temple of Artemis being defamed. 
This is like someone saying in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where I lived for three years, the home of the University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide, the college football dynasty of the two most winningest coaches in college history. It's like saying, this Paul wants Bryant-Denny Stadium to be counted as nothing. What would Tuscaloosa be if not the home of the Crimson Tide? And not to mention, who's going to buy all of our red car decals and shirts and hats from which our economy flourishes? Demetrius is experiencing and explaining the necessary disruption of the gospel. The gardener cultivating the garden. The reality is, the goddess Artemis is fake. And as an identity and pride of a city, she's as solid as a pile of sand. Sand that the Ephesians have built their entire lives on. A big part of Paul's witness was to communicate that water was coming. The Ephesians could not stand on this sand before the judgment of the true God. It would all crumble and be washed away. And their hard work on the temple and those images would actually have negative value before the true God because they are profiting off of leading people away from him. And so Paul disrupts their folly out of necessity by simply saying, did you notice that sand down there? She's not real. You made her. And by saying that, Paul's not trying to destroy Ephesus, but he's rather trying to replace a foundation of sand with something solid to give the people an identity and pride based on the true God. The necessary disruption of true witness. If you remember, Jesus often disrupted too. Think about how disruptive Jesus was in his lifetime. He said, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Remember, he was disrupted to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. He pointed out they were standing on sand, their own good works that would not save them. His critique greatly threatened their authority and their livelihood, so much so that it got him killed. Jesus also disrupted his own followers. Think about it. They had to leave everything behind. They're all their foundations of sand, and they were constantly having all their assumptions and beliefs challenged and corrected. Remember, we even saw Jesus with a whip clear out a 35-acre area in the temple on the biggest weekend of the year with hundreds of thousands of people in it. He uh, flipped over all the tables with lots of organized money on them, and he emptied that massive plot of land so it could be used how God had designed it to be used for prayer and worship. Jesus was a pretty disruptive man. So for the followers of Jesus who are in here, I wonder, does your witness cause any disruption? For many of us, you may immediately think of disruptions that took place in your own family system, your friend group, your workplace, when you started acting and talking more like Jesus. For others, you might be like, Harrison, I don't want to disrupt anyone's life. That's the very thing I try so hard to avoid every day. I don't like to disrupt in general, and my own personal private faith doesn't need to disrupt anybody else. I personally can resonate with this, especially as someone who doesn't love to be disrupted uh, myself. But the challenge is there are times in life, as we've seen, when disruption is very necessary. Acts teaches us that your neighbors, like the Ephesians, have worked their entire lives to build their houses, their identity, their pride, their economy 
on sand. And a monsoon is coming. And you have access to concrete, to rock. And this is the time of all times then to disrupt. It's the deepest expression of love to knock on their door, wake them up, and share your rock with them that they might not be swept away in the storm. That's the first expectation Luke gives us is the disruption caused by true witness. Second expectation is the disruption caused by the enemies of true witness. Look in verse 28 of their passage. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So notice the subtle shift that takes place in the story here. Demetrius was saying Paul had been disruptive. And now, it began, now Demetrius begins causing some pretty big disruption himself. He stirred up an enraged mob. And this chant that they're crying is the cult cry that people would say to Artemis in the temple. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 29, so the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So Paul wants to go out into the crowd to help his friends, but his disciples notice that he may not survive this mob. So they hold him back. And the Asiarchs are members of the aristocracy, the political and religious rulers in Asia, and they were connected with Paul, actually, and they, interestingly enough, also try to protect him. Look at verse 32. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So Luke is emphasizing now not Paul's disruption, but rather the disruption caused by Demetrius, and then by the crowd as Demetrius kind of disappears in the background. It's disruption by the followers of Artemis. There's a lot of confusion, there's impulsiveness, there's danger, there's a lack of justice, and many people are just blindly following along. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized he was a Jew for about two hours, two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so this crowd, like most mobs, cannot be reasoned with anymore, chanting for two whole hours above any kind of defense someone might give. And the point of this description of the disruption is to make a contrast between the necessary disruption of true witness on the one hand and the unnecessary, destructive, irrational disruption of Satan's empire of sin. Paul's disruption is an incision of a scalpel made by a surgeon. While this mob's disruption has the randomness and chaos of a bunch of kids ganging up on another. And the question the passage raises is this. Which one is the more true disruption? The kingdom of God or Satan's empire of sin? If you think about the story of scripture, think about how orderly the world was created. God taking this dark primordial chaos and forming it, separating out parts of it, filling those parts seeing that it was good. We humans were his organizers who named and categorized his creation, who cultivated the garden of the world. We were to bring order to the earth on God's behalf. And so God is depicted as this God of order. And remember, there was a big disruption in all this order. 
Satan came in the form of a snake and convinced Adam and Eve to break God's order, to cause a massive disruption in the fabric of space-time by sinning against God. That sin was disorder. And from that disorder came a cursed, disordered, broken creation. And also a cursed, disordered, broken humanity. Humans with disordered loves, disordered thoughts, disordered emotions, disordered actions. The kind of disordered people who could in one moment find themselves making a silver shrine and worshiping it. And in the next moment, following along in an angry mob without knowing why they were even there. So biblically, the true disruption to order was Satan and his empire of sin. And Luke is hinting at that here with these descriptions. And this means that true witness biblically is not turning the dollhouse upside down. That's what it may feel like to some, but rather true witness is the fact that the dollhouse of the world has already been turned upside down by Satan. And true witness instead is turning it right side back up. And so you can actually put all the pieces back in place and use it how it was made originally to be used. And this means for you when you worry about disrupting someone's life with your witness, remember that their life is already very disrupted by sin and Satan. Your witness, though it may feel disruptive, is not true disruption at all. You're trying to turn the dollhouse right side up. You're hoping to restore order in their life. You're hoping to put all the pieces back together in their life for them to be able to use them as uh, they were originally made to be used, to cultivate not chaos but shalom. We can see this concept play out actually in church history. Uh, From the early church, one of the first practices that was disrupted was gladiator fights. Uh, Christians wouldn't go to them because gladiators were made in the image of God. The life of a gladiator had more dignity than, than to be slaughtered for someone's entertainment. Christians were against them. And their stance seemed very disruptive. Many Romans didn't like it. They called Christians antisocial and unpatriotic. And though they thought Christians were the disruptive ones, notice how disruptive a gladiator fight would be to the life of a slave. A human being who is forced to fight for his life day in and day out in front of a crowd. This is the disruption of Satan's empire of sin. Think of the disruption that would take place in a person's mind who in the first gladiator fight they saw somebody slain in front of them to the applause of a crowd. The early church, by protesting those fights, was restoring order to that slave's life. They were restoring order to the lives of the minds of the Romans who were watching We also see the church disruption, the, the church disrupting uh, the pro, uh, unnecessary and unjust war soon after this. Uh, they disrupted it by what we now call the just war theory, where we, we refuse to put our teenagers' lives on the line simply to gain power or land or money. We only want to go to war if there's a just cause, like to protect a weaker group that's being exploited or killed by a bigger group. Another practice that, that was disrupted was bear and bull baiting. Basically, dogs fighting other animals for people's entertainment was disrupted by Christians saying, no, animals' lives have more dignity than that before God. The slave trade and slavery was disrupted by William Wilberforce, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Lyman Beecher, Theodore Weld, Sojourner Truth, 
many Christians fought to disrupt and end slavery on the basis of their faith. Racism was disrupted by the preacher Martin Luther King Jr. Addiction to alcohol and drugs was disrupted by anonymous programs, AANA, rooted in Christianity. Now let me name, Christians in the church have been far from perfect in these areas. And at times, big portions of it certainly um, have fallen in line with Satan's empire of sin more than um, God's kingdom. But my focus here is the true witness of Christians during those times um, was the one that felt like it was very disruptive to the status quo, which was part of the reason why a lot of Christians might have been against it. Um, But it was actually that disruption that we can now look back on and say, no, that was restoring order to God's creation in every one of those places. It wasn't disruption at all. The real disruption was slavery, racism, barren bull baiting, all those things. So this is, uh, we saw first the disruption caused by true witness. Second, the more true disruption caused by the enemies of true witness, which then our disruption brings order, actually. And lastly, we're going to look at the order in which true witness flourishes. Look with me in, in verse 35 now, your passage. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, now the town clerk, before we go further, is the main magistrate in the city of Ephesus, kind of like the mayor. So he is actually the official person to take control of this mob and to address the Demetrius and the craftsmen. He says, uh, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So the sacred stone was a meteorite that they used um, kind of to be a divinely sent image or message to attest to their accreditation to be the temple keepers of Artemis. So they had that, they had that meteor uh, on display. Um, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So he's basically flattering uh, the people. He's saying, Artemis and, the Ephes- and Ephesus are so great, everyone knows about you. What problem are these little couple guys going to give you? Verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. In other words, he's saying you have no official public charge to bring against these people. As we saw in Acts 17, Paul is very uh, respectful and honoring in his dialogue with people. He goes through all the proper channels such that you couldn't necessarily accuse him of a crime of blaspheming artists specifically or desecrating our temple or being sacrilegious. He does argue that something made with human hands can't be a god, um, but that wasn't illegal at the time. And so the clerk's saying, you have no grounds to publicly convict these men. In verse 38, if, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. So he's saying, hey, if you have a private dispute, not, a, not an official crime, but a private dispute, there's a way of dealing with that, and it's a lawsuit settled in the courts before Roman governors. So he says, let them bring charges against one another. Verse 39, but if you, if you seek anything further, it will be settled at the regular assembly. So now he gives them a third option, the official assembly meetings in Ephesus. The clerk's saying, if there's something that's not a crime, it's not a private lawsuit, but does concern Ephesus at large, the proper place for you to bring that up is at the assembly meeting, which would be at most a week away from where, when they were now. And then he ends with, verse 40, For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. In other words, he says, if you stay, you will be in danger of violating an actual public law, uh, rioting. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So what, is, what does all this mean? 
Romans 13 tells us that God puts governments and rulers in place to bring order, to promote good and punish evil, and that's what this God-appointed ruler does here. As you well know, not all rulers fulfill their duty and bring order, but this clerk does. He directs the mob to go through all the proper channels, not mob rule, but uh, public charge, a private lawsuit, or official assembly meeting, all of which have an unbiased third party appointed by the state who could find out if there's been any real wrong done here. And this quiets the crowd and brings order. So Luke's audience, the audience of Acts, was primarily Gentiles. Gentiles who might have found themselves in a mob like this against Christianity at some point in time. This clerk's statement is in contrast to the mob, and it's basically an appeal to the reader saying, look at how reasonable these recommendations are compared to how unreasonable and confused that mob is. Luke's underlying message is this, deal with Christianity in an orderly way. Go through the proper channels. See if there's really something harmful to the state or the people and the actions of these cultivators of shalom. Luke is confident that if the gospel is given a proper hearing, it's going to be vindicated. It's above reproach. It's ultimately good for the state. It produces citizens who both honor and submit to their rulers while also not shying away from speaking truth and love. Citizens who study the peace and prosperity of their nation, who work to bring about shalom in every sphere of that nation. Christians are not unnecessary disruptors. They're restorers of order. This is three, the order in which true witness flourishes. It's like, I think, in a Texas Hold'em poker game when you know you have the very best hand. Um, In Texas Hold'em, you you get two cards, and over time, five more cards are revealed, and uh, you create from those seven cards the best hand you can get. I I don't play a ton of cards, and I'm not that great at poker, but I do know there's times where you have the very best hand possible based on all the cards out there. No one else has it. Think about a, a royal flush. You know no other per- person you're betting against can have a royal flush because you have the cards they would need to get it. Um, and so uh, you know if we both lay the cards down, I'm winning all the chips. Luke is appealing this to the reader saying, the gospel is a royal flush. If everyone plays by the rules, all the cards are laid down clearly on the table, the gospel is going to be found blameless. It's going to win every single time. So Artemis followers, Luke is saying, play by the rules. Don't gather your mob and try and grab all the money off the table and run away. Let's lay our cards down before the dealer and see who is in the right. And now Rome was a pluralistic society. And um, though there was certainly persecution of Jesus' followers at times, Christianity was given a mostly fair hearing. And the reasonableness of the gospel was compared to the superstition of Greek mythology. And let me ask you this. Where is Artemis now? Where is Zeus now? Where is Athena or Aphrodite? They were beaten fair and square by a royal flush. They were foundations of sand that were washed away. But what about ancient Ephesus? Was the glory of Ephesus washed away? Have you heard of Ephesus? And where have you heard of it? The glory of Ephesus is enshrined in the one true God's history book. The Apostle Paul writes this to the Ephesians. 
I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that you may know what is the hope to which he, God, has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you who believe, even you in Ephesus, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and gave him his head over all things to the church, to you who are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now it can be said, not great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but great is the Lord Jesus of the Ephesians. And they're not his temple keepers. They are themselves his temple. His body on earth with him as their head. What a better foundation. A turning right side up. A restoration of truth and order that they experienced from this man Paul and his disruptive witness. And they traded a fleeting glory based on sand for a glory that cannot be taken away based on the rock himself, Jesus. That's the order in which true witness flourishes. Now remember, Luke mirrors stories about Jesus and his gospel with stories and acts about the church to show the church's intimate connection to Jesus. Can you think of a story that's from the gospel that's mirrored here in this one? In Luke's gospel, Jesus had created a lot of necessary disruption of Satan's disordered empire. He had threatened those in power. And there was another mob stirred up by those leaders to bring down Jesus. And a Roman magistrate was brought in, Pontius Pilate, a God-appointed, unbiased third party to make a ruling. Do you remember what Pilate said? After examining him, he said, I find no guilt in this man. And later he says, when they press him, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But unlike in Acts, the story differs a little bit. The crowd did not disperse at this statement. Instead, insisted and yelled, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate tries to offer Barabbas, remember, a murderer instead. And they don't care. Release Barabbas. They kept shouting about Jesus. Crucify him. And Pilate, for a third time, says, Why? What evil has he done? I have found nothing in him guilty of deserving death. But Luke says the crowd was urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. He says the voices prevailed. Pilate's main goal was to keep the people happy. And so Luke says he delivered Jesus over to their will. In this parallel story, the God-appointed magistrate did not fulfill his duty in keeping evil in check. Because in reality, it was God who was giving Jesus over to the people. But why? It was the only way for him to save you. For the best man of all of us, the perfect God-man, to die a shameful, unjust death of a criminal, and during that death, to drink the cup of wrath that God has stored up for humanity, because that's what you and I deserved. Jesus was given over to the mob that you might be saved from it. And the best part is, we find out that even when the game was not fair, even when the opponents did not play by the rules, 
Jesus was a royal flush that could not be beaten on the table or off the table. He threw off the chains of death and walked free from his tomb. And the evil they planned against him was used for the good of those who believe in Jesus. Praise God. So this week, as you consider sharing your true witness with those around you, expect to cause some necessary disruption. But remember, as you do that, the person you're witnessing to has already experienced much more true disruption from Satan and sin in their life. And your disruption is not turning their world upside down, but right side up. And encourage them to give the gospel a fair hearing, because it is a royal flush. But even if they don't, remember Jesus is on your side. The Jesus who saves those who are dead in their own sin, while they're still enemies of God, despite all odds. This Jesus has resurrection power. So let's walk together in that power this week. Amen.